I think the microphone is ringing a little bit, isn't it? Well, I'm hearing the ringing. <laughs> Maybe you guys aren't, but... Uh. Okay, we are in chapter 7. We didn't quite finish that up last week, so that's where we're going to be... Uh, what we're going to be doing today, and just as we, as we finish up 7 in the very first verse in 8, you may not realize it, but originally there were not chapter divisions and verse numbers and, uh, in the Bible that they were actually put in there later on, and sometimes you wonder why particular passages are broken where they are, and, and, and the first verse in chapter 8 really should be the ending of chapter number 7. So we will be getting... To that point this morning, I would uh, estimate, but I just wanted you to realize that. Uh, If you'll think back, there was a question that was asked at the end of uh, chapter 16, and this is immediately after we saw this picture of God's wrath falling uh, upon the earth and upon creation, in a sense, and upon people in the earth, and how there were folks who were trying to hide themselves uh, from the lamb uh, because he evoked fear in them, trying to get in caves and, uh, and, and, and calling for the rocks to fall on them, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, is particularly re- uh, referred to here as the day of their wrath, the day of the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and the day of the wrath of the Lamb, and we recognize that in all probability is in reference to the final judgment day. Uh, and we've come to understand that it really is very conducive to, to understand this book, not as just a series of events that are unfurled chronologically one after the other, from one end of the book to the other end of the book, but to recognize that it's seven different visions that basically cover the same historical time span, which would be between the, uh, the, the ascension of Christ into heaven and his second coming. And different things are emphasized in different visions more uh, and more. And uh, So anyway, I want to encourage you in that. That's the way that I'm approaching this book, and it will certainly help you to understand things a lot more uh, by following after. But th- there was a question that was asked. Does anyone remember? The question was this, is that is who can stand? Who is able, who's going to be able to stand in the day of the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and of the wrath of the Lamb? And last week we found the answer to that question in chapter number 7. And that is this, is only those who are sealed with a seal of God will be saved from that day of wrath. We considered the 144,000. There are different con- conclusions that have been raised or, or, or come to in regard to this. I don't think anybody can be absolutely definitive about it uh, as to whether it is it's a, it's a depiction in, uh, in those verses that refer, refer to the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel as if that's just another way of referring to the great multitude that appears in verse 9. That's generally the way that Reformed people kind of look at it. Uh, could it be something else? Could it be that these are, this is the number representative of all those of the tribes of Israel that will actually be saved in the end times? That's certainly a possibility. 
But we know this. The only ones who will be saved are those who have been sealed by the seal of God on their forehead, which basically is the seal of the, the name of the Father and the Son, saved by Jesus Christ. Uh, we got to about verse 9, and so that's where I'm going to pick up reading this morning. We were getting into this a little bit more, and I want to delve more into it today. So verse 9, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, of which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and all and, and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches, uh, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders uh, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing uh, and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and from where have they come? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in the temple, in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle uh, over them. They shall uh, hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of water, uh, the water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And just first first verse in 8. And when he broke the seventh seals, just remember Jesus is still, you know, breaking those seals and the scrolls being unrolled that we began studying a number of chapters back. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Verse 9. A great multitude, so many that they can't be counted. Well, as you can imagine, people have come to different conclusions as to who these represent. Uh, what I would say to you is a representation of the church triumphant. Of all believers at the end of time coming together. Uh, and they're before the throne and they're worshiping the God who has saved them. One of the things that you'll find today is people continue to make a great distinction between Israel and the church. And I think some people push it way beyond what, what, what Scripture even uh, bears witness to. That really the emphasis of the New Testament is that, uh, uh, that God's blessing is upon believers, whether it be Jew or, or non-Jew, Jew or Gentile. This is the emphasis Paul has in chapter 2 of Ephesians. That the church comes together. Think about Babylon. What took place uh, in Babylon way back in Genesis? Remember the Tower of Babel? Remember when God dispersed the nations? Well, what we're going to find is this, is at the end of time, God is going to bring not all the nations in totality, but representations of all the nations, all the peoples 
that have ever inherited the earth together into that massive body. It sounds to me like, in this description, it sounds very similar to things like they're as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Or they're as numerous as the skies of the heavens. And what I would say to you this morning, that more than likely, this is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises God made to Abraham. And that he would be a multitude of nations. And so what God did at Babylon by dispersing the nations, he brings the nations back together now under one head, the head of Jesus Christ. And remember this, that God is the fa- or that Abraham is the father of us all. Not according to his blood, but according to the righteousness he gained by his faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. They're standing before the throne and they're clothed in white robes and we, we saw before how they had given white robes to the souls of the martyrs who were there under the altar, under the throne. And they waved palm branches uh, or they had palm branches in their hands and you could almost picture them waving those and, and, and that brings to mind Palm Sunday, Right? From the Gospel of John, that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, and the people took the palm branches and they waved them. That actually was part of one of the festivals of the great feasts, the Feast of the Ingathering. That when when the Israelites would come together at the end of the harvest and they would celebrate God and they would bring their offerings to him. One of the things that they would do was that they would bring palm branches and they would wave them in the air. This is an in-gathering too. It's not an in-gathering of the agricultural crops. It's the ingathering of all of those people of God coming together. And they wave those palm branches as had been done in past. Crying out with a loud voice. And again, there are lots of great words that can be translated as speaking out or crying out. But this, this one really emphasizes how loud it was. It was very, very loud. It was... Uh, I would imagine the noise for our ears would be almost unbearable. It would be so, so loud and joyful and joyous. And they're saying, maybe singing, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation to our God. It's not salvation to us. It's salvation to our God, recognizing God as the author and perfecter and completer of our salvation. I just want to remind us again this morning, as we often do, that we're saved by grace and grace alone. There's no one here that's a child of God because they're better than other people. There's no one here that's a child of God because of good works that they've done to gain that salvation. We are here for one reason, because God is a gracious 
God. And God has granted salvation to us. He is the author of it. He is the perfecter of it. He is the completer of it. There's not one good work that you're going to ever do in your whole lifetime that is going to add one whit to what Jesus has already done for you. I hope we realize that. And I hope that you and I can say the same thing, that salvation to our God. He's the one who's done it. He gets all the credit. And to the Lamb who has played such a major role in our salvation, the very Son of God coming into the world, and being that lamb of sacrifice who brought real forgiveness. All of those lambs that had died uh, at Passover and at other times all through the generations and to the goats and the bulls whose lives had been taken, they were all symbolic of that real and final sacrifice would take place on the cross of Christ. Jesus is the sacrifice by which we are saved Jesus is the sacrifice by which our salvation was made absolutely sure. We cannot lose it. So here you have this multitude representative of every nation and every tribe and every tongue giving praise and honor and glory to God. In verse 11, all the angels remember described before as myriads and myriads, tens thousands of ten thousands of angels around the throne and those 24 elders and the four living creatures again falling down, bowing down on their faces before the throne and worshiping God saying amen, may it truly be blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. How often do we pray like that? Probably not as often as we ought to. When's the last time you bowed down when you prayed? There's a there's a fellow that if I mention his name, you know most of you would know who I'm talking about, and he was sharing one time and he said this. Uh, he was actually involved in basically home fellowships. And he was a seminary professor, very well known seminary professor. And he would go and they always would have a prayer time and when they got in their prayer time, he said, you know, that he didn't just bow. He would lay down on the floor. So what people, he would lay down on the floor with his face to the ground, to the floor before God when he prayed. Have we ever done something like that in our own lifetime? Maybe it's something we ought to try doing on least occasion. We talked about how kneeling benches used to be just, you know, they, they were expected to be in churches and, and today because... Very often the rooms are used for multiple purposes and, and all of that. The, the kneeling benches, we don't have kneeling benches here. And I know this, I know that some of us that we got down on our knees would have a really hard time getting up. But hopefully we'd find a brother or two around us that would help us to, uh, 
to get up again. But uh, I just want to challenge us with the idea that, that this, is, this is a biblical thing, to, to bow down before God as we pray. Uh, and I just want to encourage all of us to be about the, the habit of doing that on a regular basis. Now, the heart of things that I want to speak about mostly today. Verse 14. And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. A rather hot topic today, if you've studied any end times uh, Material, or if you've listened to many sermons, etc., etc., on things you probably today would hear very often mention this great tribulation. I do want to say this if anyone in this room had been born before 1800, you never in your whole lifetime would have heard about people talking about a pre trib rapture. We introduced this a little bit last week. But I just want to say to you this morning, there is absolutely no historical evidence that anyone in the church for 1,800 years ever believed in a pre-tribulation. What we're talking about here, just let me explain it a little bit, is there are believers that have gotten it into their mind and somehow they believe that it's taught in Scripture. I don't see it. I can't find it anywhere that immediately before this great tribulation that the saints will be raptured out of the world. Now, the phrase great tribulation, you find it a couple, three times in the Bible, basically. It's already been one time in, uh, mentioned in Revelation, in one of the letters to the churches. Jesus said, I'm going to throw you into great tribulation. It's also mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about a great tribulation. Now, it's ellipsis. That's the Greek word, and it's translated as tribulation, trials and tribulations, that sort of thing. Sometimes it's almost a synonym in the scriptures uh, of the word persecution. And a bit of information you may not be familiar with, it appears about 20 times in the New Testament. And virtually every one of those This tribulation is declared upon the people of God. In other words, what I'm telling you here is there's there's a great tribulation coming and believers are going to be raptured out of the world before it. That's going to be very unusual. For instance, let me give you some examples. Jesus, Last Supper in the upper room, the gospel according to John. He says to those disciples, you will have tribulation, period. Paul talks about uh, growing uh, in Romans Romans chapter 5, and he says there that tribulation brings about uh, perseverance. John is already mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, that he is a fellow partaker in what? In the tribulation. And I could go on. I mean, this list goes on and on. And what I'm telling you guys is every time it appears in the New Testament, it is in reference to trials and tribulations falling upon church people. 
So number one, why would we believe for a minute that God was going to rapture the believers out of the world before this great tribulation comes? And I just, I want to read a little bit of the, this is the Olivet Discourse, uh, just to familiarize you with what Jesus says about this great tribulation. Uh, and we've read some of this already in our study. Back in verse 4 in chapter 24, see to it that no one misleads you. So my, my caution for you today is, is, is make sure no one misleads you. You have to be careful about conclusions that you come to and, and make sure that they are very well founded in Scripture. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not the yet the end. Then the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all the nations on account of my name. He's talking specifically to the apostles when he says that. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver uh, up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. In the, in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And this will jump down to verse 21. For then there will be a what? There will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. I want you to notice something. There's no rapture mentioned there. And Jesus is obviously teaching about all of the things that are immediately coming before his second coming. What I'm telling you is we have very good reason to believe that Christians will be in the world during this great tribulation. Now, there's a couple ways of understanding it. Number one, it could be this, and it's, this seems like what Jesus is alluding to here, and that is that immediately before his coming, there is going to come a time when the tribulation on the church is going to be accelerated and magnified. A mega tribulation. A tribulation that's above all the other tribulations of the church that have taken place already. There are other scholars who believe this, that basically tribulation is, has been a picture of the church from the very beginning these people these people here are described as being those who have come out of the great tribulation now back to revelation Where did all this come from? Because, because, because the truth is this. Is, is There's some people that, that will, will question your orthodoxy today if you don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. That's how commonplace the thought has become. 
But as again, if we look at, at history, what you'll find is there's absolutely no record of it occurring until the early 1800s. A guy named John uh, Nelson Darby, who was an Anglican priest in England uh, of Irish descent, he began to teach this idea, this concept of a pre-trib rapture, that, that Jesus was going to come in a, in a spiritual, invisible, kind of quiet way. You need to understand, if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, Jesus has to come back twice, and the scriptures never speak of Jesus coming back twice. He only comes back once. But he's sometimes... And when he comes, he comes in this secretive kind of quiet way and he whisks up all of the people in the world that are his and he takes them back to heaven with him. Now let me just tell you, the concept of rapture is in Scripture. Matter of fact, we find it in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus talks about how he sends forth his angels to the four corners of the earth And what do they do? They gather together as elect. He talks after that about how two men are in a field and one is taken and one is left. So the concept of rapture is in Scripture, even though the term rapture itself doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. It's a theological term. It's not a biblical term. There's a concept of a rapture. But it's my conviction that what's being spoken about that is Jesus calling people out of the world at the time of his second coming. And they come to him and they join him in the air. And that's part of the rapture thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now very often 1 Thessalonians is used to support this concept of a pre-trib rapture. Because in the beginning of First Thessalonians, it said that Jesus will save us from the wrath to come. The question is, what is that wrath? Is that the great tribulation? Or is it the wrath of the Lamb and of the one who sits on the throne that's spoken about already in Revelation, as we just read? Which makes more sense to you? What I'm saying is this, is First. Thessalonians chapter 4 is much better understood and it fits a whole lot better into the model of that being another description of the second coming of Christ as you find in the Olivet Discourse. Not some special secretive rapture because it starts out with the blast of a trumpet and a shout. In other words, it's not going to be mysterious. It's not going to be quiet. When Jesus comes, everyone on this whole planet will will know without a doubt for the first time ever that God himself has descended upon this planet. It will be visual. It will be verbal. It will be loud. And people will know. Everybody will know that there indeed is a God. There are people who believe this, and I believe this to a point, that there are many things in the Olivet Discourse that actually 
underwent partial fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. If you've ever read any accounts of this this destruction of Jerusalem, uh, yet another time, first destroyed by the Babylonians and now destroyed by the Romans. Atrocities like you can't even imagine done to people in Jerusalem and the city torn down and the temple torn down, burned down first and then torn down to the very foundation stones as it sits even as we're speaking today. Nothing left of the temple but the foundation stones. It has a lot to do with the dating of, of Revelation. When was Revelation written? Was it written in... It was people who believe there's a lot in Revelation that was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. They believe in an earlier date, sometime in the AD 60s. Others, on the other hand, conclude it was more in the 90s. And we, we studied this back when we went through the Gospel of Matthew not so many years ago. And we talked a lot about those things uh, then. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, you have got to believe that Jesus left the church in absolute darkness for 1,800 years. Then all of a sudden, he revealed something to John Nelson Darby, who he had not revealed to anybody else. He gave him special enlightenment or something like that because he saw something now in the scriptures that no one had ever seen before. And he began to teach his views on things. And the movement eventually became known as dispensationalism. Had a major impact in the United States. He visited the United States in the mid and late 1800s. And he shared his teaching with people here and people lay hold of it. And it is... It's, it's, you know, this belief in this pre-trib rapture has gotten its, uh, its, its hand around the throat of a good bunch of, bit of the church in our day. There's some places if you deny it, if you don't believe it, and you can say, show me in Scripture where it is, and I've, I've done that over and over again. I've never had anybody be able to show me any reason why I would believe in a pre-trib rapture, ever. Not one inkling of a reason for it. But today... There are so many people who believe it as if it is God-given orthodox understanding of things. And it's easy to show historically it started out with the teaching and understanding of one man. Certainly sounds a lot like wishful thinking. And I won't, don't want to be in the world when this great tribulation descends upon it. I don't know about you. But just remember the pattern in Scripture over and over again, unbroken, is that people of God are in the tribulation. They're promised tribulation. It's part of the picture. It's part of the persecution of the church that's been going on ever since its inception. really popularized a lot when the Schofield Bible, Schofield Reference Bible was first published in 1909, I think. 
because the study notes reflect dispensational thought. It's a Bible that was used. It's, it's still in publication. It's used very lot, much. And I really think that uh, dispensational thought was a lot more, became a lot more prevalent in the South than it was in the North. The Southern Baptist Convention today is very much represented in the Southern Baptist Convention as orthodox belief. Now, I don't know if you've even considered this or you struggle with it or if you heard about this pre-trib thing and you just kind of bought into it and, uh, and all of that. But I don't, don't, don't take what I'm saying. You need to take your Bible and you need to study it. Let me tell you, if you're going through your Bible and you're studying it, you come up with some reason to justify this whole line of theology, please share it with me. Because God has hidden it from me and from lots of other people. My fear is it's a sign of where the church really is as far as the church's general understanding of what Scripture says and what Scripture teaches. I teach college, most of you know that, and I'm constantly challenging my students because there are a lot of them who really don't want to learn anything. But challenging them with the idea that you have to learn unless you want other people to do all of your thinking for you. You have to. Now, there's some people who are very willing to let other people do all of their thinking for them. Just tell them what they're supposed to do. Tell them what they're supposed to think. Tell them what they're supposed to believe. And they just get in line and follow right along. But that's not the way of the church. The way of the church is the way of the Bereans. And as everything that we practice, everything that we believe, everything that we proclaim needs to be well-founded in Scripture. You need to go home today. You need to weigh in the balance of Scripture the things that I've said. If they hold up to Scripture, believe them. If they don't, then don't. Please don't. There are a lot of people today that think they have all the answers to the end-time mysteries. They really do. They've got all of the you know, question marks taken care of. All the... I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. You need to run from those people. Seriously. Because it is, there is mystery here. And some of you like a good mystery. Some of you, a, a mystery drives you crazy till you find out what the solution is to it. But when it comes to the end times, there are things that are cloaked in mystery, and you and I just need to be satisfied with it. Not reading things into other things that are, might be there but are not necessarily there. Not buying into doctrines that really appeal to our human nature, that if the tribulation comes today, if we're believers, Jesus is going to whisk us out of here before it all takes place. 
Know your Bible. That is your only protection from bad theology, from bad understanding. Read it, study it. And there are a lot of good books too. But they are secondary sources. The Bible is always the source, the first source. Well, you may not agree with me, and you may not agree with my assessment of things, but like I said before, I've studied this more than once in very great detail. And, uh, well, we didn't talk about the seven years of tribulation. Let me just tell you, that never appears in Scripture either. Some of you may, may have heard that the, the tribulation is going to last for seven years because the Bible teaches it. What I'm telling you is the Bible does not teach it. Something Darby came up with by working through the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. And does it ever mention seven years? So how long is the tribulation going to last? We don't know. But we do know it's going to be great. It's going to be a mega tribulation. And just remember, regardless of what happens, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. That when you're his, you're his. For eternity. To be one of those grains of sand on the seashore to be one of those stars in the sky, to be among the nations and the people who gather before the throne and give worship and praise.